You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Amen. Let's just in this moment just lift our hearts to the Lord one more time in prayer as we open up His Word. Father, thank You for these amazing truths that we've just been singing about. Thank You, God, that we can bank our lives on You and You alone. Now, Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you teach us, that you'd instruct us, that you'd enlighten our hearts to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and you'd move us and change us from one degree of glory to another. And God, I pray that the message of Easter and the cross would never fall on deaf ears and hard hearts, but instead, God, would it fall upon uh, eyes and ears and hearts in the spiritual sense that are ready to see and to hear and to grasp the fullness of Jesus. Oh God, may this be so. We can't make this happen in our own hearts. So God, may you make it happen today. For your name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat this morning. Welcome here. We're so glad you've joined us uh, for uh, not just worship, not just child dedication, but to open up God's Word. One of the things we love in our church uh, more than anything is to open up God's Word and just to see what He has for us. And don't don't get man's opinion on things. Let's see what God has for us. And so this is a primary part of our service every single week. And so uh, we're excited about uh, gearing up for what God has for us this morning. In Mark chapter 14, you can turn with me there. Uh, Mark chapter 14, if you're visiting with us, you didn't bring uh, a Bible. Perfect, we have one for you. If you just want to put your hand up, we'd be more happy to give you a Bible. And if you don't have one at home and you've never uh, read one before, please take it home. It's our uh, early Easter gift to you. And we just encourage you to open it up and uh, read it. Uh, But Mark 14 is where we are. Um, If someone around wants to help people find it, that would be great. Uh, I want you to follow along. Why? Because I want you to know that that God is saying this, not this guy up at the front. God is saying all the things that uh, I want to teach you uh, this morning from his word. And so while you get there, I just want to remind you, Easter in two weeks, uh, uh, highlight for us as believers to celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we have Easter invites at the back of the church on the way out. Uh, please take those Easter's a season where people will come to church and are open to the things of God. And so let's take full advantage of that. And so grab those on your way out. We have many for you uh, to, to, to give away. Don't be shy. Take as many as you're going to use. Uh, also, uh, baptisms that uh, in two weeks. First time we're doing a baptism on Easter. How appropriate. Amen. Uh, excited to see what God is doing in changing lives. And if you've not yet been baptized, if you if you follow in Jesus, you love Jesus, you're trying to honor him with your life, if you've not yet been baptized, and there's no excuse for you to stay out of the tank, uh, God has commanded this, and we follow in obedience as we profess our faith uh, to the world around us. So if you've not yet signed up, uh, there's still time, there's still time, there's still time. If God's even nudging you right now, man, I know I need to be there. Uh, don't uh, harden your heart to the voice of God. Uh, be, be in the tank in two weeks. I know you'll be blessed by that. Uh, let's get to the word of God this morning. Uh, Mark 14, let me just uh, simply read this uh, for you, this text, and then I'm going to unpack it for you the best way. And I have entitled this sermon uh, simply this, The Anguish of Christ. The anguish of Christ. We've been studying as a church, before I read for, for visitors, we've been studying as a church, uh, really getting our hearts ready for Easter and, and trying to help us all together understand with more depth and intentionality the fullness of what Jesus Christ meant for us when he died on the cross for us. And so we've been praying that God stir us to a greater understanding of Jesus. If you're here today and you've never really understood this, I pray that you'll get this a little bit this morning. But we started off with Jesus in the garden of, or sort of in the, in the upper room with his disciples in the Last Supper and all that the sacrifice of Jesus meant. Today we're kind of going on to scene two of the last day of Jesus. Jesus' last day, significant right the last day of Jesus here's scene two so kind of like picture the curtains closing on scene one now here's scene two it's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane 
starting at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is Jesus the pastor is talking about. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found his disciples sleeping. He said to them, uh, said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's really a powerful text. It kind of shocks us a little bit to see Jesus in this place. And, and honestly, it's one that we often skip over when we come to Easter. You know, the A roll of Easter, so, sort of those images of like the, the nails, right? And the, the nails being hammered into hands and the cross or the three crosses, you know, uh, bearing Jesus and the two uh, sinners on each side of him or the crown of thorns, you know, that, that what a visual image. The crown of thorns being jammed onto Jesus' forehead or maybe even the, the sponge dipped in vinegar of being like shoved in his face as they made fun of him. We think of those images when it comes to Easter. Those are kind of the prominent ones. You Google Easter, those are the ones that are going to pop up. And, and yet this Garden of Gethsemane whole scene is massively important to the Easter story. It's massively important to, as we understand exactly who Jesus is and what he was willing to actually endure for our sake. You can't have Easter without the Garden of Gethsemane. You know why? Because really it's the Garden of Gethsemane, what I just read. That's where the war was really won. That, that's where Jesus... This picture of Jesus flat on his face saying, God, God, if there's another way, make it happen. But ultimately, this is the path you choose. I am willing to walk this path for your creation. This is where the battle was won. This is, this is so important for us. And if you're like, well, how does this apply to me? Just tune in. You'll see how it applies to you. Because this is where, Je this, is, this paints a picture of the battle that Jesus was willing to fight for desperate people like us who need a savior and need to be reconciled to God and need to know God as our Lord and Savior. This is where it was won and lost right here. And so as we read this, study this this morning, I'm, many people use this passage to tell us how this is how we're supposed to endure difficult circumstances. And maybe, yeah, it's kind of a subplot in this, but here's the main plot. The main plot is we want to see Jesus clearly. And we want to know the heart and the character of our Savior. So that's where we're going today. And we're just going to look at the Christological sense of this, who Jesus was and, and what he's endured for us. That Praying that God would draw us into his life and his love. And so here's the first thing you can write in your notes. We're just going to go through this verse by verse. Here's the first thing you can write in your notes. It goes without saying, but get this. Jesus faced an excruciating death. Jesus faced an excruciating death. I, I, don't, don't let us be lost. This is the last day that Jesus is alive here on earth. Let me ask you this. If you could script your last day alive on earth, would it look anything like this? 
If I could script my last day on earth, here's what it would be. It'd be me laying in a bed as an old man, surrounded by family and friends, reliving all those Facebook moments that you put for the world to see, you know? Soft music playing in the background, maybe a little tears, lots of I love yous. And then, and then after saying all the things you need to say to everybody that you love, it'd be like just drifting off into the deep eternal sleep. That would be for me the, the ideal way that, man, God, if you really love me, would you do this, you know? That would be it. And yet we look at this passage, and that is the furthest thing from Jesus' reality at all. Somehow we get our whole idea skewed of what God's favor is and what it isn't, because because Jesus is the most favored by God. That wasn't his reality at all. Jesus wasn't passing away into eternity with this beautiful melody in the background. He was actually passing, he was actually marching forward into onto the cross with the song of sorrow blaring in his eardrums. After Jesus takes his meets his disciples and tells them all about the sacrifice and what it's going to do. He takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Help you understand where this was. It's a significant place for the disciples. It was where they often went to pray. It was a quiet little place just outside of Jerusalem. There's a picture here on the screen to help you get the geography of it. See on the right here, there's the, the walls of Jerusalem. It's on the top, and the Garden of Gethsemane is below it, just in the Kidron Valley. And so in the hustle and bustle of the city, where would you go to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city? You'd go to, you'd go to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place ripe with olive trees, quiet, a little serene, you know. And Jesus' disciples often went there to pray. It's where they spent a lot of their time when they needed to meet with God. Gethsemane, however, this beautiful picture the, today, that's the, where it stands today. It's still there today. Actually, some of those olive trees, they live for forever, it seems. Some of those olive trees are probably still the same ones that Jesus walked and interacted with. It's pretty fascinating. And so it seems like this quiet, peaceful place. When you go to visit Israel today, I was there a few years ago. It was a pretty, pretty amazing place. It's so beautiful and so full of life. And, and, and yet Gethsemane doesn't have any positive connotation to what that word means. Here's what Gethsemane means. It, it is aptly named. It means oil press or olive press. So we like to paint it as this glorious time. But actually Gethsemane, say Gethsemane to, to people of that day and that culture. And they were like, wow, that has that, this, this in Tense meaning to it. If you understand oil presses of, you know, obviously to get olive oil, you have to squeeze the olives to get the oil, right? And so pr- prominent was olive oil in this day. And so what they would do is they put, see where the, the olives go, right underneath that big thing that mushes them and mushes them. So, so squeezing the oil and they come down the vat and into that. So how do you get olive oil? You squeeze olives to get all the juice out of them you can aptly names for this is really the reality of the death that Jesus was going to die. He wasn't going to be laying in a beautiful garden. He was going to get the life squeezed out of him in the most excruciating of ways. Symbolic of the torment and the anguish that Jesus was going to face as he looked to the cross. So I went to a place called Gethsemane. This is the setting of this scene. Hope you can picture it a little bit now. It starts to get intense. Remember that nice little quiet meal they were having together last week? Now, now if this was a movie, here's what would happen. The, the, the music would start beating a little bit more intensely, a little bit faster. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. I know we can just easily skip over those names, but you have to understand um, 
that Peter and James and John were three of the disciples that were closest to Jesus. And so this was, for the reader in the early day, this was already signifying to them, hey, this is something significant that's happening. Uh, We better pay close attention. Whenever something significant happened, Jesus took who with him? Peter, James, and John. So it's intentional. Everything in the Bible is intentional for us to understand the fullness of the meaning of the text. And so Peter and James and John, so this is like like you sitting in your office, and all of a sudden the CEO comes walking by with all the VPs. What's going to happen in that sense? All of a sudden you're sitting up in your desk, you're like, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? Something significant. Your ears are perked, right? So you you can hear between the walls. So this is signifying for us that, hey, this is an important reality that we can't miss here. Peter, James, and John, they were with Jesus when when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. They were with Jesus when the Mount of Transfiguration. And so they're with Jesus, and they're going out to pray. I love it that the four of them are out going out to pray. What what does Jesus do when the going gets tough? Well, well, he gets going, right? Uh, Sort of. He gets going on his knees in prayer. So he took with him Peter, James, and John. They began to pray. But look at this. This is a little bit surprising. He began to become greatly distressed and troubled. Again, contrast that with last week, kind of leaning back at the Last Supper. It's all good. Now he's distressed and he's troubled. Distressed is a strong amazement or fear or dread. Yeah, Jesus was in some ways terrified of what was before him. Trouble, it's sort of like this idea, this, this heavy weight. Like, you ever f- felt the weight of the world on your shoulders? You ever felt the weight of the world on your shoulders? Yeah, we all have, right? You just feel like, a, I just can't escape it. It's so heavy. My soul is troubled. How do you describe your soul in that case when you got the worst news possible? You just, you know, it's hard to describe, right? You just, what are you feeling right now? Troubled. Distressed. We've all been there. You know, the times where you're, the phone rang and the news that you've always dreaded, like that's the news you get. Can you feel it? I'm trying to help you feel this, not just know this, but feel this. Remember those times in life? This is what Jesus is feeling in the last day before he died for our sins. Distressed and trouble. This is shocking, strong language about Jesus. Even his prayer, it almost seems like he's like, I don't know about this, God. My soul is sorrowful. Even to death. Like, this is so heavy, God. I I think I'm going to die before the cross because I'm not sure if I can handle it. So he tells disciples, he says, remain here and watch. Really what he's telling them, he's not, he's not saying, hey, watch what's going to happen. Look at me. Let me be the center of attention right now. He's not like, ooh, look at me. I'm awesome. He's not saying that. He's like, hey, you know what? Like, disciples, like, I've prayed for you a lot. Now's your time to pray for me. Be spiritually alert. Watch and pray. This is the Savior of the world asking his disciples to pray for him. Don't you find that a little bit like, that's odd. What are we seeing here? Here's what we're seeing in this this, this passage. Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing the full humanity of Jesus on complete display for us. We know that Jesus was fully God, right? We get the divine side of Jesus, and yet sometimes I think we fail to remember. This helps us understand the significance of Easter, the significance of God's love for us, the significance of what Jesus would do for us because we so desperately as sinners need a Savior. We understand the divinity side of God, but I think sometimes we forget that the humanity side of God, he's fully God, yet he's fully man at the same time. How that all works together, it's like, I don't fully understand that, but it's true. So what we're seeing in this passage 
is simply this. This is the humanity of Jesus. As he's about to face the most excruciating, humiliating, painful death that the world has ever seen. Stop and think about that for a minute. As you read this, I was struck by this. I've read this passage many times. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to read the Bible, right? But I was struck by this again. Like, man, what a path that Jesus walked for me. What a calling upon his life for you and I. I think sometimes we minimize the cross by this. Well, of course Jesus died for my sin. Like, he's God, and God told him to do it, so he did it. He can do anything, right? You almost get this impression that you're like, oh, God, you want me to die on the cross? Well, yeah, I'll do that. Like, almost, you almost minimize the, the intensity of what it actually took to get Jesus Christ to that place where he's willing to die on the cross. And in a sense, we minimize the reality of not just God, but his love for us. This passage helps us see it a little bit of different eyes. We see the anguish of Jesus. This calling on Jesus' life didn't just rattle him a little. We think, ah, no sweat for Jesus. You know what it says in Luke chapter 22, 44? It wasn't just a no sweat thing. You know, you know the anguish that, that Jesus walked through? He actually sweat drops of blood as he thought about all that was to come. Like so perplexed, so overwhelmed that, that blood was leaking from his pores. In this very instance, Luke tells us that. doesn't tell us that in Mark. Luke tells us that. They're parallel accounts. In other words, they go together. Luke's a doctor. He understood all that stuff a little better than Mark did. And so Luke made document of that. And he, it's not uncommon for uh, people to sweat blood in rare cases where there is extreme emotion and anguish. It's a medical term called hema. I can't even say this. I practiced it all week. <laughs> Hematohydrosis or something. This is what happened. It wasn't a small deal that Jesus died for us. Try and picture yourself in this, this scenario. So I, uh, I'm trying to put myself in Jesus' shoes. I tell you all the time. I try and kind of try and put myself in the shoes of the Bible characters. Try and grasp the full meaning and emotion of it. Like, like, like this is equivalent to, to me getting my worst news that in 24 hours, Daryl, your car is going to be submerged in Martindale Pond and you're going to die by drowning. Ugh! That's one of my worst fears. Every time I go over a bridge, I'm like, oh, straight and narrow, straight and narrow, you know? <laughs> Don't talk now, kids. Like, here we go. But hey, my plan for you, if God was telling me that, my plan for you, Daryl, is to like, it's just give me 20. Like, can you imagine the anxiety that that, what's, what's your, worst, your worst fear of dying? Like, or, or to learn that we're all going to burn in our house like tonight. If we turn the lights out, we're going to wake up, there's going to be fire all around, we're going to burn. Like, that's what we're going to, like, can you imagine? No. I know some of you are like, stop talking about death, right? <laughs> but I'm trying to help you understand the intensity simply of what Jesus was willing, get this, was willing to endure for you and for I. 
He, was already, he already knew the plan. Like he, he's also fully God. He knew that, that, that he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be beaten around. Not just like with a few fists, with like, like, like almost like barbed wire, right? He's going to be beaten. He's going to rip the flesh on. They're going to hammer him to a tree. They're going to put him up there, and he's going to die of asphyxiation. It wasn't the nails that killed him. It was like suffocating up there because he couldn't breathe anymore to hold himself up. It's understandable why his soul was very sorrowful, even to death. Somehow we've made Easter this nice little kid's story, and yet it's intense. Jesus isn't some made-up guy that we tell stories about. This is real. This is what really happened. Tells his disciples, wait here and pray. Be alert. Like, Don't be indifferent to this all right now. Look at verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. When the Jews prayed, they generally prayed standing up with their arms lifted to heaven. You know, that was sort of the posture. And to fall on the ground is sort of like, like I can't even stand up. It's too overwhelming. And, and he's calling out to God and, and trying to catch the intensity of the emotion behind this. Fell on the ground just close to where the disciples were. The, most people think it was within stone throw, so they could hear all of this happening, which is significant for a little later on. They could hear the cries and the groans of Jesus, the one that had it all together, had it all together, right? All of a sudden now he doesn't have anything together. That's how shocking it was for them. And he prays this that if possible, the hour might pass from him. If God-ordained moment where his mission was to be fulfilled. He's like, hey, if there's any other way, God, like, can you do it? This is what he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He didn't say, if you can. He's like, remove this cup from me. Do it, God, remove it. Verse 36, also quite significant. Again, I think we skip over scripture a lot without really getting the full meaning of it. For a Jew to even use the words Abba, Father, in the same sentence as God was sacrilege, it was, you just don't do that. There's no, like, God's God, we are us. Jesus is saying, like, like using this term of intimacy, just, just like I use with my dad. You know, I call him dad. No one else calls him dad but my sister and I. Just like our kids use with us. My kids, daddy, daddy, and, and your kids call me daddy. That's weird. My kids call me daddy. That's okay. It's just Jesus' moment saying, like, 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 inviting his father, like, I am your son, you are my father, we are together in this. Reminding himself of the intimacy of God, even becking upon God's intimacy with him. And I know you can do all things, all things are possible for you. Again, it's not like my son saying, oh, daddy, you're so strong, meaning you're stronger than me. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, like, all things are possible, God. You can do anything. You can solve the world's problems without anybody or anything. I know you can do it, so please take this cup from me. Doesn't it almost seem like Jesus is bailing on his mission? Doesn't it almost seem that way? It's too much. This cup, what's the cup? Commentators disagree on it, but... The cup could be synonymous with our. The cup could also be a picture of God's wrath. It wasn't just that Jesus was going to die, horrible enough, but when he died, he was going to take on the sins of the world, your sin and my sin, the sin of the worst sinner that you can think of, the, the, the worst sinner on the planet. He was going to take the sin upon himself. 
And he's going to drink the cup of God's righteous anger against that sin. He's going to bear the sins of the world. And it was almost in this hour too much for Jesus to bear. I just want to stop right here before we get to the next part of the second half of this passage. We're already through the first half of the text. I just want to stop and contemplate all that we've seen so far. This is intense. Why so intense? Here's two reasons why this whole scene is even in the Bible. That Jesus was called to walk this path in the first place. Number one is this. That God is trying to show us the heinousness of our sin. You're like, this is intense. That's a, that's a hard path to walk. Why would God even allow this? Here's what God's trying to show us. The, the intensity of this whole thing is just to show us the heinousness of our own sin before a holy and a righteous God. Like, like God is so holy and our sin is so gross that his eyes can't even look upon our sin. That his nostrils to smell our sin makes him gag. That he can't even breathe the same air as sin. God and sin cannot be in the same room at all. And it's not that when sin walks in, God runs out. No, like, like God obliterates sin in his holiness. And I think sometimes we have heard this story over and over and over. We sort of minimize our sin. We're like, oh, well, Jesus died for my sin, but it wasn't that bad. At least my sin's not as bad as, have you seen and we fail to recognize, why did Jesus die? It wasn't just for somebody else's sin. Whose sin was it for? I'll throw my hand up first. My sin. Why would Jesus have to go through all this anguish? It's because we sinned. It's because we turned our backs on God. It's because, because we choose rebellion over righteousness. It's because we choose to live with loveless hearts some days. It's because we allow uh, gossip and bitterness to well up in our souls. It's because we, we're okay with little white lies and little looks of lust. It's because of our jealousy and our self-centeredness and our anger. And this whole scene plays out in the Bible because God knew that if we didn't have a perfect Savior to pay the penalty for our sin and make us brand new on the inside, we were lost for all of eternity, separated from God in a place called hell. And Jesus isn't laughing at our sin, your sin or mine. And instead, he's not laughing at it. He's willing to take the penalty of it for us. It shows the heinousness of our sin. If you ever wondered if your sin really matters to God, look at the Easter story one more time. If you ever don't care about your sin and you laugh it off, look at the Easter story one more time. If you're ever content with sin in your life and think it's okay, look at the Easter story one more time. God went to great lengths. Jesus went to great lengths to save us and redeem us and renew our hearts from our sin. 
This is why it's so intense. Here's the second reason why it's so intense. It's the horrendous reality of Jesus' mission. Jesus, in a few short hours, was going to stand in the place of every man, woman, and child who would believe. Listen to some of the verses about Jesus and about his mission that God has called him to that are found in the New Testament. Jesus came, the King of all kings, the God of all gods, came not to be served, it says in Mark 10, 24, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Not for everybody, but for many. We just read last week in Mark chapter 14 that Jesus came knowing that he was going to pour out his blood to seal the new covenant between God and man, the new contract, the new relationship between God and man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it even more clearly. Here's Jesus' mission. He who knew no sin would become sin. Galatians 3.13, that Jesus was called to redeem us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the penal substitution for believers doesn't fully understand the scriptures because it's clear. I just said it for you in five different verses. It's clear. We don't need to deny that Jesus was substituted for us. We need to embrace Jesus and say, thank you for being my substitute. I can't understand it, I don't get it, but thank you for being my substitute. It makes me want to love you more and serve you with all that I have. Jesus' mission was to experience God's wrath in order that those who believe in him would never, ever, 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 ever face the same wrath for our sin. Why was it so intense? Because this is like a death like no other. No one is ever in the world going to be called to a death like this ever again. One time it happened and one time alone. Yeah, people have suffered horrendous deaths. You've seen those shows on TV, A Thousand Ways to Die, you know what I mean? Like highlighting all the horrendous ways people died. Well, this is the one that stands alone. No one, will, no one has ever or ever will suffer a death like this, not because of the horrendous nature of the physical part, but because Jesus bore the penalty of our sin and became, took all the wrath of God upon himself for us. And just when you think he's going to back out, right? If I were to stop right here, you're like, well, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to back out? If I was Jesus, I'm like, I'm gone. Somebody else, please. You've got to have another son somewhere, right? We'll make one. Look what he does. Look at the next few words. Read them with me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Read them with me again. Roger, thank you for not leaving me hanging. Everybody else, too. Doesn't care. I don't care what version you have. The last part of chapter 30, verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's the turning point of the whole passage. Here's where the battle was won or lost. Yet not what I will, but what you will, O God. Here's the second thing I want you to write in your notes. Point number two. My Savior chose the path of submission. My Savior chose the path of submission. This should cause you right now in your hearts to be like, oh my goodness. Why do I have you open up your Bible? Because I don't want you to think that I'm making this stuff up. Like, Like I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not smart enough to make this stuff up. In my wildest dreams, I would never create this scenario in my head. But oh my goodness, don't you think? 
All the anguish, all that Jesus was looking forward to, he's going to walk towards the cross, and yet he is the, the strength of the Father to say, yet it's not, my life is not about me, God. It's about you and what you want, and you want alone. Not my will, but your will be done. I love how Jesus' prayer isn't that complicated. You know we try to make prayer so complicated, <laughs> so wordy. Look at this, it's like one sentence. Yet so powerful, isn't it? Jesus isn't in this moment. He's not here going like, well, it's not going to be that bad. You know, I've heard of worse. He's not trying to rationalize. Well, it's only going to be a couple hours. going to be with God. No, he knew it was going to be the most horrendous thing physically he could ever face, emotionally he could ever face, spiritually he'd ever encounter. Yet he comes back with this. After all this prayer, after this wrestling of the soul before God, he comes back with this. Comes back with this. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus isn't this weak little pansy guy that most of Christianity portrays him to be today. After wrestling with God and spending time with God, he, he says, okay, God, if this is it, then I'm gonna do it, God. If this is what you want, I am going to do it. I will willingly go and defeat death and disease and, and demons by dying on that cross. These few words right here, not what I will, but your what, but what you will, this is where your salvation, the battle for your salvation was won, right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. At this point, Jesus backs out, it's all over. We have no hope, we have, we have no salvation, we have no Easter, yet Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And look at verse 37, he came and he found them sleeping. After all this, he comes and he finds his disciples sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? It's not a question, like, of course he knew. He's not like, are you sleeping? Or are you just like, as my dad used to say, resting your eyes? It's more of a like, are you sleeping, Peter? Have you not watched what I've been doing for the last little bit, like on my face? The, you don't see the blood? Are you sleeping? Kind of like a for real? Notice how he says, Peter, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? What's Peter's name before he was, you know, the, on this rock I'll build my church was Simon. It's almost like Jesus saying, Peter, you're going back to your old ways, man. You're going back to your old ways. In the midst of the denial, you're going back to your old ways. Could you not watch for one hour? It's like one hour, like really? Like, like there's, there's one hour. We've, we've talked about a lot of things in our time. You can certainly have a meal for an hour. You don't mind that whole aspect. You can sit by the lake for an hour. You can talk sports for an hour if that's what they did. I don't know. But, but really, you couldn't pray for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. First time Jesus says, come and pray, remain here and watch. He's really asking you to pray for me. Now he's saying, hey, hey, Peter, maybe you better start praying for you at the same time. Pray for your own soul here. Lest you not be tempted to what? Complacency? Because that's what it looks like to me. Lest you not be tempted to complacency when it comes to the things of Jesus. Lest you not be tempted to like deny me, which is also part of whole Peter's narrative story. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation of complacency and denial. Nobody says here, the spirit is Indeed, willing, but the flesh is weak. Can't we all resonate with that? I have that one circled and underlined and highlighted. Yes, Lord, amen. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. 39, so Jesus went away and prayed again, saying the same word. He said it again, the same thing. Have a father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not your will, but I, well, not, not what I will, but what you will. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They'd just eaten a big meal, remember? It's kind of like after Easter dinner, their eyes were heavy. It wasn't an excuse, so it was more a reflection of their weak spirit. 
And I'm sure again, he's like, come on, guys. They did not know what to say to answer him. It's like those times when you catch your kids and it happened last week, Nick, paint everywhere. Nick, were you in the paint? He started to go like, and then he's like, well. <laughs> Are you sleeping again? <laughs> Came to them a third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. I don't think that word is, not like your mom would say, that's enough. I don't think that's it. It's more, it's more like, it's done. It's over. Missed it. The hour has now come. It's go time. It's like the flight I-93. Remember that whole flight in 9-11? Let's roll. Remember that? That's what he's saying. It's, it's enough. Never mind. You missed it. Let's roll. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When the Bible says two words, back-to-back sentences, you need to know they, they are pretty important, right? Emphasizing the, the deep betrayal that Jesus encountered as he marched toward the cross. Amazing. This is the strength of our Savior, like an athlete subjecting themselves to pain because they want reward more than anything else. So Jesus is willing to not take the comfy path because he's looking forward to his reward before God. Like the soldier that keeps on fighting that war and fighting that war. Why? Because there's something greater than them at stake. They're going to put their life on the line. So Jesus is willing to fight this war knowing he's the only one that can accomplish it. And there's something greater at stake than even his own life. I want you to notice a few things about Jesus before we wrap this up and apply it to our hearts. Number one is this. Look, how, look at the faith of Jesus Christ in this text. Yes, he's fully God, but he is also fully man. The, the faith of Jesus to ultimately say, God, I don't like what you've chosen for me in this very moment, but yet I know that you are good and you are God, and I will walk this path anyway, trusting that you are wiser than I am. We often tack on at the end of our prayers, right? But your will be done. Uh, we really don't mean it. The faith of Jesus when he says, but your will be done is saying, God, it's your will. I will subject myself under your will, whatever that may be, even if it doesn't make sense to me or it looks far too hard for me, I will do it. The faith of Jesus is remarkable in this text. I want you to also notice this, Jesus' profound determination versus the disciples' drowsiness. The comparisons and contrasts in the Bible are again here on purpose for a reason. They could have just painted the picture of Jesus and look what Jesus did, how amazing he is. That would have been like, wow, what a great guy he is. Let's worship him, right? But yet, the compare and contrast, you know what they're there for? To show us, to show us who Jesus is compared to who we are. And let me be square with this. None of us are like Jesus in this room, including your pastor. We resonate with the disciples in this reality. Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Jesus is so resolute. He's got, he's got the end at hand. He's got you and I in mind as he's going through this text. He's got you and I in mind as he goes through this scenario. The disciples, they couldn't care less. 
Notice how the threefold sleeping, instances of sleeping coincide with the threefold denial of Jesus. The resoluteness of Jesus is astounding. It's astounding. Disciples knew it was a big deal. They knew the hourglass was turning. He told them the night before. He said it again. The hour has come. The hour has come. Where are they? They're sleeping. What's Jesus? He is like head down going after this, not going to turn back by the grace of God. Why? Because he's so passionate about sinners. That's the reason. Yes, about God's glory, about, about obedience to God, but he's also passionate about sinners. This is what drove Jesus to the cross, obedience to the Father and, and passionate for our lives. And nothing was going to stop him from paying the penalty for your sin and mine. You often, we often hear stories of People fighting in battle and what keeps them going? They got a little picture of their, their family right in their top pocket. Whenever they get scared, whenever they feel like giving up, they pull it out and they take a picture of their wife and kids. Like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight to survive. I'm gonna fight to survive. Well, here's what Jesus did. He didn't fight to survive. He actually fought to the death. But whose picture's in his pocket? It's yours and it's mine. Because he knew if he didn't give his life for us, We'd be dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no hope of having a relationship with God. We have no hope of knowing his blessing and his favor. No hope of of an abundant life here on earth. And no hope of heaven once this life is over. And so Jesus was going to allow the temporary victory of the enemy so that he could win the ultimate war for our souls. Look where Jesus won this battle through prayer. Notice where his power came from. It's after praying and praying and praying that Jesus got up and he said, okay, God, prayer is where your presence is and your perspective is and your power is. Jesus won this war through the strength of the Father. He won it. Notice after praying, He wasn't running away. He was marching to the cross. Notice after praying, he wasn't cowering in faith. This this weak picture of the humanity of Jesus we see, but we see him with standing strong in faith. Notice after he prays, he wasn't angry and despondent with the situation. He was actually filled with hope and joy, as Hebrews tells us, enduring the scorn of the cross for us as sinners. His power came through prayer. Reminded as I read this that Jesus was willing to go through hell to save us from it. Starting right here in Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was willing to go to go through hell to save us from it. Here's what Max Licato says about the Garden of Gethsemane versus the Garden of Eden. The Bible is a story of two gardens: Eden and Gethsemane. In the first, Adam took a fall, in the second, Jesus took a stand. In the first, God sought Adam. In the second, Jesus sought God. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus emerged from the tomb. In Eden, Satan led led Adam to a tree that led to his death. From Gethsemane, Jesus went to a tree that led to our life. Isn't that sweet? So what do we do with all this? Tell our church every week, I don't just want to give you a nice 
intellectual sermon and let you like walk away and be like, hmm, that was good news. I want to help you apply this to your heart. What, what do we do with this? I, I read this and I'm like, oh, like, like, how do I even respond to this kind of love for me and this kind of devotion to, to, to my life? How, what do I even do with this? Here's three practical things you can do in your life this week to apply the full reality of Easter and Jesus in your hearts. Number one is this. It's see Jesus as your true hero. You see Jesus as your true hero. We, we have heroes everywhere, right? Some of us make heroes of our kids and our, our parents and our grandparents and movie stars and actors and actresses and, and we spend a lot of time thinking about them and studying them and talking about them. Well, who's our only true hero in life after you read this? It's Jesus Christ. He ought to be the one that lights up our smiles when we hear people talking about it. He ought to be the one that's in conversation with believers and unbelievers alike. He ought to be the one that takes prominence in our hearts. Jesus is the only true hero that has ever lived and ever will live. Everybody else is a cheap knockoff. Jesus is our true hero. Hold him in highest esteem. Allow his name to be prominent in your hearts and on your lips. Elevate Jesus above all else. Here's a second application. See Jesus as your perfect mentor. See Jesus as your perfect mentor. You want to know how to live the most abundant life that God has created you to live? Follow Jesus' example and apply those words to your life and your heart. God, not my will, but your will be done. Here's how we pray as Christians. Here's how we pray. God, here's my plans are. Now please bless it. Make it happen. Only to find that God sometimes answers those prayers and we're like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking when I prayed that? Agreed? Here's a mark of true maturity in the faith of Jesus Christ. God, not my will, but your will be done. I might not like it. It might feel uncomfortable comfortable to me. It might not align with my dreams and my goals, but God, I want what you want more than I want what I want for my life because you are good and you are God and you always know best. Here it is. I surrender. Think of how your life would even change right now if you followed Jesus' example and surrendered your life to the Lord, maybe for the first time. God, I know you are true. I know you are real. I've heard stories all my whole life about you, but I can't surrender. Maybe today's the day that you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord and is the Savior. You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in him, and you surrender to him. Your life will change, but it will always be for the better in God's eyes, not in the world's eyes. Maybe today's the day you stop running and start surrendering. Maybe God's been asking you to, to be faithful to his word in some different areas and you're like, you know, you know, I want to be but I really don't want to be at the same time. I know I'm supposed to remain in this marriage but it's hard. I, I, know, I'm not, I know I'm not supposed to maybe be messing around with my boyfriend or girlfriend but man, it just seems so pleasurable. I, I know you have a plan for my life but I want my plan. Maybe today's the day that you just take, look, look at Jesus. Yeah, It wasn't easier from the world's perspective but man, did Jesus live the full life. Man, does he have his reward now in heaven far greater than this world can ever offer. Maybe I'm going to stop beating down my own path. I'm going to start walking down Jesus' path for real, surrendered. I'm tired of my stubborn, rebellious heart. I want Jesus to give me a new one.
starts with this prayer, God, not my will, but yours be done. Start seeing Jesus as your perfect mentor. What do we want to be? We want to be like Jesus. And ultimately, what is Jesus going to ask us to do that is too hard for us when we already know what Jesus has done for us? That was not too hard for him. Here's the last one. Give Jesus your full attention. See, Jesus is the one who deserves your full attention. Kind of hit that already with my true hero. I kind of jumped ahead. But I know you, like me, every Easter, you're like, man, how, how, can, how can I get the fullness of the meaning and significance of Easter in my mind and heart? How can, how can I fully grow deeper in my relationship with Jesus? Here's where it starts. Just giving Jesus your full attention every morning, get into his word and say, Jesus, show me a great picture of who you are. Spending time in prayer, not lazy prayer like the disciples, but true discipline and the work of prayer. Prayer is work. Why is prayer work? Because the enemy doesn't want you to do it. Look at the results in Jesus' life. You'll see some of the same victories in your life. Determine that this Easter, this Easter, I am going to know the fullness of Jesus Christ as I set my gaze on him, as he becomes number one on my speed dial, as he becomes my first priority in this life, as my whole life, this whole season revolves around him. Make Jesus your priority and you will see God do things in your life and through your life that you never thought possible. Maybe just simply start seeking God for the first time right now and start exploring some of these truths. If you're here for a child dedication, you're like, I don't even believe this stuff. Even today, if this stuff is true, what I'm telling you, then this is life-changing stuff. This is stuff you can't ignore. Your life depends on it. And if you are in the place where you know Jesus, this, Jesus, I need to get back to making you my number one priority. As we've seen how you've made me yours through the cross of Jesus Christ. Whole heart and intention of this series is to simply draw us nearer to a greater understanding of Jesus that our whole lives will revolve around Jesus and living for his name and his glory. Let me pray that that would be the reality as we close. Wow, God, what an awesome picture of your son and all that he endured for us. It's humbling, God, because we know we don't deserve it. We acknowledge, God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner like anyone else and I can't seem to do what's right on the, with the things I know what to do, the things I know I shouldn't do. I, I do do just like Paul says in Romans chapter seven, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who is willing to endure this anguishing last day, this day of sorrows, this day of great dread and great trouble. Why? Because he knew that my only hope was somebody standing in my place to take the penalty of sin, which is death, and to give me everlasting life with God. Father, I pray today for everybody in this room, would this truth come alive in every heart? For those that don't believe, I'm sure there's some here that don't believe, give the seed of belief, oh God, I pray. Open eyes and hearts to see and to believe. For those that, that maybe believe and are stubborn, God, would you break down that stubborn wall right now in those hearts? Allow them to see that your, their path will never lead to you or heaven, but your path will always lead to Jesus in heaven. For those that do believe, Lord, and are striving to make you prominent and preeminent, you're their hero and their mentor and their ultimate desire, God, would you just allow this message to stir them up, to stir them up, to fix their eyes on Jesus and see fully the glory of their God. We love you, Lord. We don't know how to express it because we can never repay you for all that you've gone through, all you've done for us. But let us try now 
through song from the bottom of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.